The Courage to Lead, episode 159. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having an exceptional week. Um, I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Michael Ashley. Michael Ashley began his writing career as a newspaper reporter and playwright before transitioning to Hollywood to work for the head of the literary department at Creative Artists Agency. He served as a screenwriter for Disney, in which he sold the treatment for the hit Halloween movie, Girl vs. Monster. A former screenwriting professor, Michael has written nearly 40 books on many subjects. He recently co-authored Own the AI Revolution, a Growl Hill publication, which launched uh, at the United Nations. It was named one of 2019's top business books. Michael serves as a columnist for Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Becker's Health Review. Beyond running his creative content agency, Michael is the author of four bestsellers. He's been featured in Fox Sports, Entertainment Weekly, The National Examiner, the United Nations ITU News, and Orange County Business Journal and Orange County Register. An official Vistage speaker, he specializes in turning his clients into thought leaders via ghostwriting and consulting with businesses on storytelling. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You're a busy me. guy. <laughs> but it sounds like you are too. <laughs> Not nearly that busy, man. You have done everything. That is very cool. So, did you know from an early age you wanted to be a writer? Yes, I did. I started at, at ten years old. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer. It's actually kind of funny story. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Okay, so um, when I was a kid, I very much liked the Lord of the Rings stories. And um, in fact, my, I didn't know that there were books until uh, my mom was dating a guy and he used to tell those stories to my brother and me before we go to bed at night. And one day he goes, you know, those are actual books. And I go, oh, wow. And so I read them. I read the whole series within a month wow. when I was 10. And uh, when I was 10 in fourth grade, my teacher gave us our first creative writing assignment. And so I decided to write a story about Middle Earth. And when I turned it in, I got into a lot of trouble. And she called my mom and had her come to the school. And she said, your son plagiarized Tolkien. My mom said, no, he was inspired by Tolkien. But all that stuff is original because I saw him write it out at our house. She goes, well, in that case, he's really good. And she encouraged me to be a writer. And from then on, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Very nice. Very cool. Love it. All right. Well, we want to come back and talk about more of that, uh, kind of how you got your start, how you found your way into writing, the, the writing space, and you've done a lot in there. Like I said, you, you know, all these different newspapers and, and journals and stuff that you write for and helping other writers get their books out and publish, right? So mm-hmm. I want to talk about all of that. Before we get started, I've got 10 questions that I ask every one of my guests. Uh, listeners will know these are the 10 questions made famous on the TV show Inside the Actor's Studio where the host James Lipton asks these questions of his guests from Hollywood TV film stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So if you're ready, Michael. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Question number one, what is your favorite word? I don't know if it's, a, it's two words, but I like cellar door. I like the way that sounds. Cool. All right. What is your least favorite word? My least favorite word? Uh, I'll go with the word moist right now. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of just makes you feel kind of icky. My wife it does more than I do, but I, I'll go with that one. Okay. That's actually come up a couple times on the podcast. Oh, wow. uh, what turns you on? Turns me on. Um, in, in what way do you mean? 
like it's well, just creative way creative yeah way. yeah i'd say ideas i like ideas i like mind-bending ideas that uh that um challenge your worldview and i also like going to weird places with my brain like twilight zone-esque thinking nice. about possibilities absolutely very cool okay uh, what turns you off I think um, people being sanctimonious and holier than thou, people acting as if they have the right to judge you when they have their own problems and issues. Absolutely. What sound or noise do you love? I like the, the sound and noise of my children, their voices. Cool. What sound or noise do you hate? Conversely, I, I really hate loud noises, uh, honking of, of horns or just anything that's abrupt just bothers me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Question seven. What is your favorite curse word? Uh, I won't say the word since this is probably a family show, but it, it, it begins with mother and then I think you can add on. Okay. <laughs> All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would, if I had the skills, I would like to be a singer. Cool. Very cool. You ever sang professionally before? Not professionally, but I've done karaoke and things like that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what profession would you not like to do? Not like to do. Um, I think that I wouldn't want to be, even though I was a professor, I don't think I want to go back to teaching. Yeah. That's tough. That's a tough profession. Yeah. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? at the pearly gates. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Good job. All right, Michael, we're going to come back, talk about how you got your start, talk about some of the programs and projects you've been involved in um, and how you help people get their word out there and to become thought leaders. All right. Sure. So listeners, we're going to talk about all of that and more right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Michael Ashley. Michael, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thanks for calling in. You're out in California, right? Well, actually, I'm traveling right now, so I'm in North Idaho. Are you? Very cool. That's so cool. the same time zone, but yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's on our, our list of places to to visit as we roam around the country. So you've always been a storyteller. You like telling stories? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ever since I was a kid, um, my parents uh, got my brother and me a lot of Star Wars action figures and G.I. Joes. And from a very early age, that's what I would do. I would just create stories with those with those toys and um, make them up with my brother. And so even from a very young age of four and five, I was doing that. Very cool. And then right out of school, you were a reporter, the Columbia Missourian. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I was still in school. So um, really cool. go to the J school. I was a, a journalism minor at the University of Missouri. And um, it's a long story, but they normally don't let minors work for the uh, newspaper. But I happened to my ex-girlfriend was an editor over there and she put in a good word for me. So they gave me the worst possible beat 
Okay. Uh, but because I was willing to do the stuff that no one else would do, I would do the, they called them life stories, but they were obituaries. And I did a lot of them over mm. Christmas break. Uh, I was able to get on staff. So I was on staff uh, even before I graduated when I was still at the University of Missouri. Wow. So you started with obituaries. Yeah. It's not, it's not fun because you have to call somebody who's grieving and ask them some very personal questions. Okay. However, I can say that um, they're very happy when, when they see them because the Missourian made them, they call them life stories, and they were quite long, usually three or four pages, and they would be a celebration of the person's life. So it turned out good in the end. Yeah. Very cool. Which is an unusual way to use your writing skills, but I guess it helped, right? Asking the end from the questions and kind of putting everything together, you know, those yeah. words. Very yeah. cool. And then you've written for Forbes, Entrepreneur, Green Entrepreneur, as well as features in Entertainment Weekly, National Examiner. I mean, wow, you've been all over the place. And what I'd have like some of the best, best assignments that you've had? The best assignments? Um, well, the thing about those is they're usually not assignments. Usually, um, you're kind of like a stringer where you present okay. what you're going to write about. I don't know if I ever got assigned with those. I sometimes, I also work for the energy sector, and I was lucky where I got to make my own decisions about what I wanted to write about. But I'll say that um, the things I really enjoy writing about, especially for Forbes and Entrepreneur, where I would... I've written a lot about AI and big data. In fact, that's what my, they call it your swim lane at Forbes. And, but I would like to do it from a different way. My background is in philosophy. That was my major in college. And I've often felt that when it comes to AI and big data, especially, we have these conversations around business and innovation, but we rarely have the ethical conversation. Mm. And so I've tried to use my platform to bring up the human considerations. And I think the, the most there are two pieces that I'm the most proud of for Forbes. The first one was uh, I wrote it right at the start of the pandemic, and it's called Let's Change the Story We Tell About COVID-19. And as opposed to the other articles I wrote for Forbes, this was actually a story. I wrote a story that takes place probably 50 years in the future about all of the benefits, the good things that came out of COVID-19, because I wanted to tell a positive story. If you remember back to that time, as a nation and as a world, we were so filled with fear. And Mm -hmm. I felt like if we can begin to put positive stories out there, then we can have somewhere to go towards. However, if it's always fear, well, what kind of consciousness does that produce? And then the second one uh, that I wrote about was called Liberty by Design. And so there's so many different apps and technologies right now that are really dehumanizing us. They're really hurting our potential. In some ways, they're making us digital slaves. And of course, they're surveilling us. And so I wanted to put an idea out there where um, from the private sector, from uh, capitalists, as a bottom-up revolution, we could begin to make money not by enslaving people and surveilling them, but actually freeing them and creating a better world. And it's been, uh, it was very well, well received. And uh, a lot, I, it's my hope that it encourages the next generation of designers, engineers, computer scientists to create that kind of technology. Nice. Uh, you brought up some good things. I want to unpack it a little bit. Uh, first of all, COVID, you're right. We were kind of faced with our own mortality and that brought everybody down. Everybody got scared. All you heard about was all the negatives that were going on. What are some of the positive, positives that have come out of the, the epidemic or the pandemic? Well, I think for, for one thing, I think it brought families together, which is also a double-edged sword. I mean, I know families could probably get sick of each other being together that often. But I think that, you know, for, for my family, for instance, um, unfortunately, my wife broke her leg the first week of the pandemic. Mm. 
And so uh, I was running a business at home. My kids were not, my, my oldest was in preschool at the time, but he was at home. And then there was, the littlest one was just fresh out of being a baby. And so at the time I had to kind of uh, take a lot of other responsibilities on running the household and taking care of my children and running a business because my wife couldn't put her weight down on one leg. And that's not to say my wife wasn't helpful too. She was doing a lot of other things and she definitely stepped up in the later months. She actually homeschooled our kids for a while. Um, but if you think about just my own personal experience, here we were all together spending all this time together. And we were already a family that spent a lot of time together. But if you imagine a different family where mom or dad is flying around the country, they're not seeing each other, they're always going back and forth. Here you are, you're brought together, right? I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing is that I think it also woke up people to the sense of, of inequality, of what was going on here. I think that people got to see firsthand that in some ways, and, and we're still seeing this, there are divisions in, in our working class. Uh, so for instance, the blue collar workers, the people that are taking the deliveries, the people that are working the retail jobs, if you're buying groceries, if you're buying clothes or whatever it is, those people didn't get to go home and to be on their laptop and to be on Zoom meetings. And I think it shows us, it's one thing to tell this kind of thing to people, it's another to show the, the deep inequalities that we have in our country and in the world. And, and it's my hope that it also made, me, made people appreciate that food doesn't just magically appear in the grocery store. It comes from people. And although I'm, a, I'm vehemently against uh, lockdowns um, for, for many reasons, especially the mental health aspect, I think it does show people in ways that if you just told them, this is where your food comes from, this is where your supplies come from, it's my hope that it leads America especially to realize that we can't outsource this stuff anymore. We must bring manufacturing back to back to the U.S. for the sake of our country, but also for prosperity. And so that if the next crisis, whatever it is, that we are self-sufficient. There are many other advantages, but I think, or benefits, they, they came out of this tragedy, but those are just a few. Yeah. Yeah, and our, our supply chain is just now starting to recover. Yeah. After all that, so wow. Um, and then you also brought up uh, about AI. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. When, when we talk AI, everybody thinks of business. How can this help business? Mm -hmm. But you took a different perspective on it. Right. Nice. Tell me about that. How does AI help us as just people? Well, I mean, AI is, is used so commonly. I'll just give you the, the easiest example. You said that you're traveling right now. I don't know if you're using an actual physical map. Most likely you're using uh, GPS on your phone. Mm -hmm. that is, that's AI right there. And it's, it's helping you. And, and that's a, a wonderful thing. Um, people use it in terms of, let's say you're writing a text. And it's a small thing. But, you know, if you're, a, a, let's say you're a very busy mom, there is an autocorrect or it's, it's anticipating the words that you mm -hmm. might want to write there. Those are wonderful things. On the other hand, I think that AI is inhibiting us. So, for instance, um, I just read the book by Larry McMurtry, Lonesome Dove. And in the story, there are these cowboys and they're going back and forth vast uh, distances, miles. And they're able to do it by plotting where they go, by looking at the stars, knowing, um, you know, also knowing because they've done this trip so often, they've developed this part of their brain. And in that way, they're very capable of understanding uh, geospatial uh, distances, things like that. Well, most people can't do that right now. Most people, you, you plop them in a city, they have no idea 
how to get home, much less go anywhere. And so I think that on the one hand, it makes life easier. But on the other hand, I think it's weakening our abilities. And I think it's also putting us into echo chambers. The algorithms that determine the content that you see, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on whatever it is that you, you use to get your content, by virtue of the way that they make money, their money-making model, they need to speak to their base. And so they rile up their base. They know that outrage is a way to get people to stay on the platforms longer. Well, what is that doing for the consciousness of people? I think it's polarizing us. I think it's making us intolerant of each other. And it's making us an angrier, more uh, an unhappy nation and world. Absolutely. No, couldn't agree more. And I, artificial intelligence, it learns as it goes, right? So it's getting more efficient, more efficient. I think that's making us less efficient. We've lost a lot of those things, like you're talking about the Cowboys, navigating by the stars, by their, you know, what they're used to do with the senses. I think we've lost that. Growing up, I knew every one of my friend's home telephone number by heart. Yeah. Now I don't know my own <laughs> phone number if I don't look at it, right? on the phone. Yeah. I think that these things are kind of taking away some of that. I wish it wasn't so. Um, you've written, co-written, or, or helped ghostwrite how many books? 40, 40 some odd books now? Nearly 40, yeah. Wow. I think 37 is the number, but I'm also writing now, so it's hard to say what that yeah. exactly Yeah, yeah. we'll stick with 40. That's good. Okay. That, is, that is awesome. How do you find these writers that you help? Are they, I mean, are you coaching them, teaching them to write? Or is it the, the publishers that come to you and say, hey, this guy's floundering. Can you help him out? How does that happen? Uh, well, it's never been the latter. Um, I do help people. I do coach people. I'll come back to that in a moment. But typically, the way that I work with my clients is um, I'm in a, I'm in different networking groups, and I'm also a professional speaker. So, for instance, in an hour, I'm going to give a presentation to a group of lawyers about how to use storytelling techniques I learned working in Hollywood for your business. And so, people often hear me speak, and they say, "Well, I'm working on this, or I have this idea for a book," and that can lead to it. But often it's from referrals. Um, I've been in business. I've had my own business since 2015, and I've uh, worked with a lot of different people. And I, I like to think I do good work. And so they refer me to their friends or their colleagues or, or the people that they know. And that's typically the way it happens. Um, sometimes uh, it's the case where someone has written a book, and they want me to give them a review and to help them from a developmental editing standpoint, and also to serve as, as a book coach. Um, I tend to do those a little bit less, but I still do them quite often. I say I have four clients right now that I'm doing that with, where either it's a nonfiction or a fiction book, I'm helping them to bring their book to fruition, whether it's helping the outline and the structure or improving the actual written words on the page or dialogue, whatever it is they're looking for, I help them in that way. Nice. Um, and so when they come to you, these writers come to you, they already have an idea for their book? Or do they already have something kind of started and you help them? Yeah. I mean, typically they, they've either one already written it or they have an idea for a book. Nice. And then do you help them get published? Because that's that's one of the tough parts about it, exactly how to publish. Either go to a, a known publisher or self-publish. Do you do both? I do both. Uh, so I'd say that 60% of my clients are self-published. And in that case, I help them. We write the book together. And then when it's ready, I have a team that handles proofing of the book. They handle the interior design and they, they handle the cover design. And then I bring it all together, quarterbacking it, and we upload it to Amazon and poof, it's published. In fact, we did that this, this week. Um, now, on the other hand, 40% uh, do traditional publishing. And I've worked with many different publishers 
from McGraw-Hill to Skyhorse. And in fact, um, this week, uh, we signed a book deal for my client and me, my clients and me, uh, with Wiley. And so that book will be coming out in December. And so um, I can't guarantee that for anybody, um, but there are different um, uh, aspects that can help you. So for instance, if you have a strong platform, if you have a really uh, commercial idea for a book, that definitely helps. And so when there are those right considerations in place, then we can get a traditional book deal. Very cool. And talking about storytelling, um, I imagine you do a lot of speaking, you help people with storytelling. Storytelling in business is, it, I think it's critical mm-hmm. to the marketing and selling of the business and stuff. Yes. Um, what do you see when you're working with those groups? What are they, is it that they don't know their story or they don't know how to tell their story? I think it's more of the latter. Um, I think that it, it doesn't come natural to, to, to a lot of people. And I'll even include myself there. So when I was in film school, um, we were working on how to create characters. And it might sound like the easiest thing in the world. You say, you know, this person is X years old, they're white, black, boy, girl, whatever it is. But how do you begin to show, not tell a character? And what I mean by that is it comes through their actions and their behaviors. And I actually teach this to business professionals. I could say my client is a wonderful person, but I'm just telling you that. And that really doesn't mean anything to you. But I can show you she's a wonderful person by her actions. So, for instance, in the speech that I'm going to give later on today, the example I give is a working mom who grew up poor. And she knows that she does not want the same life for her children. And so she decides to take on two extra jobs to have enough money so that her child can do better than her. I just showed you that she's a good person. That's very different from me saying, Wendy's a nice person, right? And so that's one aspect, but there's another one which I think is just as important or more, and that's conflict. Now in our everyday lives, most of us will do everything we can to avoid conflict, but conflict is the engine for all drama, for all storytelling. And I give you, I give audiences the example of the Kardashians. I usually ask people, how many people are fans of the, the TV show, The Kardashians? Most people are, are, are too afraid, even if they do like it, they never right. see the video. But I say, look, whether you like the show or not, we can all agree that it, is wild, it was wildly successful. Why? And I say it's because it was a train wreck. There, were, there was fun, fighting, punching, kicking, hair pulling, not to mention all the verbal jabs, right? And people couldn't look away. Well, if you think about that, the people that created a show like that or any reality programming are no idiots. They're very smart. And they know that we're drawn to conflict. When I say to my, uh, my business clients, I say, whatever you do, there is conflict in it. How can we bring up conflict in the story? And it doesn't have to be someone punching someone in the face. It could be that. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. It is simple as this. One person wants something and they cannot get it. That's conflict. And as humans, we are drawn to those stories. And if we can emphasize that, for instance, your client wanted this, they were facing this problem, you solved it for them, boom, you have a story. And that's going to get people's attention. But more importantly, it demonstrates the value that you provide other people. Nice. Yeah, because you're right. The conflict is what drives the story on, right? If there is no conflict, you're, you're sitting there watching the grass grow. Well, you know, <laughs> it's exactly. boring. Exactly. Very cool. And uh, lawyers, I can, I can see that. I had a guy on the podcast the other day that, that helps lawyers kind of build their business. And it's like, you, don't, you think that lawyers are like smart people. But there's a lot of things that they, I mean, they know the law, but they don't know how to run their business necessarily. And they don't know how to get their story out there to draw people in. So I think that's, that's, that's awesome. Well, it's actually interesting. So I gave um, a, a different presentation a couple of years ago, and it was about how to do your elevator pitch. 
And the idea behind it was you may know what you do very well, but can you say it in 30 seconds to a minute? And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with this. Um, I, I learned to do it because I had to do it every week for a networking group. We would have 30 seconds to do a commercial and then they cut you off. And I got to practice every week for two years. And so this lawyer heard my talk and he's, he's a patent lawyer. He, he deals with IP law and he uh, hired me to just practice storytelling together. And um, you're, I mean, he's a brilliant person. He knows way more than en about engineering than I ever will. And yet he was having trouble communicating his value proposition and talking about these great examples from his life. And so I helped him put that together as a story. Excellent. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, your time with Disney, helping Disney out. Talk about that and talk about the, the movie you put, pitched to them. Sure. So um, back then I was working as an insurance broker and I was also working as a professional reader for a creative artist agency. So it was my job to read screenplays for okay. actors and directors and give my feedback. And um, my friend who I went to film school with, he had actually decided to go right from film school to law school, uh, mm -hmm. which was crazy to us. But while he was there, he met uh, an executive from Disney and he told me that she was looking for some new blood, some new ideas for Disney. And so I submitted some of the, um, they call it coverage when you do the critiques, like I mentioned for CAA, I, I submitted some of the coverage I did and some of the things that I had written, some screenplays and other stuff. And I got into a special program at Disney. Uh, there were six of us that were, they got into it and we got to work with the president, Gary Marsh for a week. And at the end of that week, they would buy uh, one movie idea and make it into a movie. And so over the week, um, we got to pitch to Gary Marsh and let me say that that is a very intimidating experience. Right. <laughs> it was so intimidating because he would cut you off after 10 seconds if he didn't like what he was hearing. And so there were three guys, three girls in this program. And I remember at the time, I, I don't think I was a, a great at pitching. I think I've gotten much better at it, but I did know that this was a huge opportunity. And in fact, one of the guys I was with was so intimidated by Gary. He said, you know what, can you just pitch for me? I can't do it, I don't wanna go up there. I was like, well, you're gonna miss out on this chance. He said, I'm not gonna do it. So I did his pitch for him, and there was a movie idea that he liked very much. It was a soccer movie, and so everybody began working on this, this idea, uh, except for one other person, and it was, I think it was Friday and of, of, the, of the week that we worked there. And I thought to myself, if this gets selected, um, I'm not going to get any recognition. The idea was if one idea got selected, we all got paid. But I wanted to get recognition for it, so I took the other idea, which was about monsters, and it was kind of rough. And I, and I went to the other person who wasn't working with them. Her name is Michelle. And I said, let's flesh this out. Let's create a treatment. And we did it in one day. And um, it's interesting because really one day's worth of work got me an agent, completely changed my life, um, and became a hit movie for Disney. Awesome. Girl versus monster. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Good stuff. Do you have other things in the works, other, other screenplays and stuff? Um, not, I'm not doing a screenplay at the moment, uh, but... Uh, I have my first graphic novel will be coming out in, in uh, a couple months here. In fact, it was written originally to be a TV series. And my hope with this is um, it's kind of like a proof of concept. We're doing the first issue. We have, um, we have uh, a really prestigious uh, illustrator, uh, artist on it. If you know what Atomic Blonde is with Shirley Theron, he, okay. yeah, yeah. he, he did the original comic book. So nice. that's coming out. And uh, I do want to eventually turn that into uh, a screenplay. Very cool. It actually is, but I want to sell it as a series. Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. All right. So the, the program, we talk about courage. Where do you find the courage to walk away from the nine to five, right? To create your own success. Where do you find the courage to overcome 
the setbacks that happen with entrepreneurs, right? The divorce, bankruptcies, illnesses, death, things like that. Um, how about your story? What, where did, uh, where did you find the courage to do all the stuff you've done? Well, I think my, my courage came out of anger. Um, I did not like the situation that I was in. So, um, I, I've had a lot of different jobs before and I don't think I'm the kind of person that is a good employee. I never wanted to work for someone else. And, uh, I had a lot of bad bosses I, I didn't like. And at one point in my life, right around that time when I was uh, selected to that program at Disney, I, I hated my day job. And um, I just knew I couldn't do this anymore. And so for me, it was more like a necessity, I think. I couldn't live in that situation anymore. And I was faced with a choice, continue to be upset, not like what I was doing, or take take a courageous leap and do something different. And um, um, I think for a lot of people, it's something like that where the alternative is worse. And so, in fact, this, this presentation that I'm giving um, in an hour today, I bring up the story from Girl vs. Monster. So that, that movie is about fear. And uh, what happens is this girl, um, it's, her name is Skylar. It's, she's played by Olivia Holt in the movie. Um, she believes her parents are uh, accountants and really boring. And uh, her parents are going out for uh, Halloween that night for, uh, to, to dress up as famous accountants in history. Couldn't be anything more boring than that, right? And so she has a sleepover at her house. And at the time, she's kind of a stuck-up, selfish teenager. Um, and she has them over, and she accidentally trips a switch that releases all of the monsters that her parents had been uh, impri had imprisoned in their house because they're really not accountants. They're monster hunters. And so she is faced with a dilemma. One, continue to do nothing and, and to allow her fear to subsume her. Or two, rise to the occasion and become brave, and she becomes brave. Well, I think that's pretty similar to a lot of us right now. If you think about the person that's in war, maybe you are, are very frightened by the, the gunfire that's going off by your head, you're in a foxhole or something like that. Well, you can either sit here and die or, or be captured, or you can do something to get you at yourself out of the situation. I think when circumstances conspire enough that you realize you're in an, an inflection point, Either you can do one thing or do another, and bravery or being courage is the better of the two or the, the least worst of the, the two. Mm -hmm. That's when people really begin to act. Absolutely. And uh, my background is in organizational change management. One thing we try to tell executives is that, you know, human beings, we as human beings move, we're motivated by, right, moving towards pleasure or away from pain. Mm -hmm. So you're right, when things get that untenable, it's like, no. I'm going this direction. It's yeah. got to be better than where I'm at now, heading in that direction. Yes. Um, did you have a role model for that, for the courage? Um, do you have a role model for that? Well, I guess I have a few. So my background, my um, my undergrad was in philosophy, and mm -hmm. I I was really inspired by philosophers that were in the existential movement, like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. And mm -hmm. so those were people, and, and even Heidegger too, and, and Sartre. And those were people who said, there is a way that the world is doing things, and that is okay for them, but I need to find my own path. And in particular, Kierkegaard talks about this idea of angst. And, and, and it's, a, two, it's a, a, a sword that cuts two ways. On the one hand, angst will um, be almost paralyzing. His, his definition of angst is you, are, it's, you have so much freedom that you just don't know what to do, right? 
Um, but you can use that, that anxiety that you have, you can channel that and allow it to propel you forward. And so I think about that in terms of Nietzsche also talks about designing your own life and really being what he calls an ubermensch, but being the person that's willing to have the strength and the courage and, and the inner, um, inner, inner peace of mind to move forward. And I think those were, were my heroes in a lot of ways. Here were people that said, the status quo is not for me. I'm not going to follow what the crowd is doing. I need to find my own personal path and blaze it. And so those were really the kind of people that, that inspired me and empowered me to think differently. Very cool. Good deal. Yeah. Very nice. So for new writers, uh, young writers coming up, do you have any advice for them? What do you, what do you say about the people that maybe want, like you, they, they want to follow that path and become a writer? I think the first thing I would suggest is you have to read everything and you have to read things you don't like. So for instance, I did a, a romance, uh, I've done two romance books actually for clients and it's not a subject that I read. Uh, I, and so I read, I read the notebook. Uh, I read um, Bridges of Madison County. Mm -hmm. I, I even read 50 shades. And by the way, I actually think that's not a bad book. I, I know some people hate it, but um, you have to, you have to familiarize yourself with, with what's out there. And so you have to get outside of your comfort zone and read as much. And I also think you have to read about a lot of different subjects. Over the years, I've had different writers work for my company. I've worked with many different writers. And I think that what I really like is I like to work with people that are older than me because they've had a lot more life experience. Um, I've written for many different people, much older than me. And, and I've also written for women. Obviously, I'm not a woman. Um, and so, but I'm able to tap into those other things and put myself there because I do have life experience and I have read about different things. And if you really hope to be a writer, you've got to challenge yourself and you've got to read a lot of different stuff. In addition to that, you have to practice a lot. So when, back in the days of when I got into Disney, I was an insurance broker and I'd work from eight to five with my day job. And then from five thirty to nine, I would write. I did it for five years. I wrote on the weekends and, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this 10,000 hour rule. You got to do that. I mean, yeah. I think you can try to do, do 20,000, do 30,000. The more practice, I mean, I practice every day writing and editing and I know that I'm still, there's still, I can still improve and, and never stop trying to get better would be my other suggestion. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a friend of mine went to school with, um, he's written multiple books but he would do the same thing. He would sit in the corner of like a waffle house or a coffee house or something like that and write little character sketches about the people in there. Mm -hmm. What are those two people talking about? And he'd make up yeah. the whole story and write all about this just to kind of practice his craft. So yes. yeah. good stuff. So what's next for you? And you've done so much. You've written for so many people. You're a visited speaker, keynote speaker. What else? What's, what's next? Uh, good question. Well, um, I'm really excited. I'm doing a, a new a new book on the space program, uh, the private space program, and I'm very excited to working about, on that. I'm doing a, a book uh, about the dangers of tech monopolization when it comes to you know just a handful of companies on social media and other platforms. We know what Amazon is doing to small retailers. I'm doing a book about that. Um, but I also what I would lo love to do is do more professional speaking. Um, like I said, I'm doing, I'm speaking today, but I want to get more into that. Uh, I was gearing up to do a TED talk and to really focus on my professional speaking career. And then the pandemic happened and some of the things I had planned fell through. I want to get back into that. 
And eventually I want to create my own media company. And um, I'm really inspired by what Barry Weiss is doing right now, where she's trying to appeal to the people in the middle that don't feel like they really connect with, uh, with, uh, with the polls and left and right. The people that are, are really interested in seeing um, positive change in this country and in this world and, and feel like they're left out of that hysterical conversation that I mentioned earlier. I think that there is an opportunity there where we find we find our commonalities more. We have more in common than we have apart. And I would like to create that kind of content uh, for people and encourage other people to create content within that media uh, organization eventually. Excellent. Very cool. Well, we look forward to reading more about you know what you've done and the books that you put out there. Are you still working? Are you working with any writers currently? Oh yeah, um, I have a team of writers that, that I work with and then I also help people and coach other people that yeah. want to be writers. Very cool. Well, this has been great. If people want to get in touch with you um, to learn about your writing programs or, or things like that, how can they do that? What's your, do you have a website? Sure, you just go to, to uh, michaelashleypublishing.com. There's a part there where you can click and, and send me a note or you can just email me at michael at michaelashleypublishing.com. Uh, I'm actually not on social media except for LinkedIn. You can look me up on LinkedIn as well. So those are a few ways to get in touch with me. Perfect. And I will make sure that those links are in the show notes so people can do that. Your books are available. I know they're on Amazon. Are they on uh, other platforms too? They are. I mean, Amazon has all of them. So I, okay. I would, I'd go for that. Yeah. Very cool. I'll put a link to your author page on there so people can find those books. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. I really thank appreciate you. your time. I appreciate you. you being on here. Um, listeners, hope you guys are taking notes. A lot of good information here. If you've got a story in you, make sure you get that out. If you're in business, you should be telling your story. Get your story out there so people know who you are, what you do, and why. Um, so yeah, reach out to Michael Ashley. And uh, share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues. And stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan, saying so long for now.